even today when we talk about race, it's so solidified in our mind in terms of that narrative that we say, oh, anything about race sounds like it's worldly or cultural. And yet the issues that have emerged over the years from the church and in the church was because of this false understanding and inability to separate the world and culture from theology and our biblical worldviews. Do you want to you you continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with cops? We've been exploring the issue of power over our last several episodes, and we're doing this because we want to help Christians and those interested in Christianity learn to steward power wisely. And that means learning to understand and distinguish between what is biblical and theologically driven on the one hand and what is merely a cultural assertion. And one of the areas where the church has struggled the most to understand and navigate that distinction is when it comes to the topic of race. So if you've noticed that problem or if you've wrestled with it yourself, you're going to want to stick around for our conversation today as we talk about race and power with Dr. Alex Jun. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, a podcast where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Today we are talking with Alex Jun about power and race. Alex is a professor of higher education at Azusa Pacific University in California and the former moderator of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, where uh, Brad and I are both pastors. So Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, we're looking forward to talking with you. We are doing a mini-series on our podcast on the topic of power because we have seen the issue of power really become a prominent part of the cultural conversation in the past couple of years. I think a lot of us, um, as leaders in the church, have felt unprepared. And so Brad and I have been talking with a number of guests to try to just understand power dynamics and what it looks like to steward power well as Christians. And so we're really excited to talk with you today about how the topic of power intersects with race. And we know the issue of race has been simmering for a while um, in our country, but especially in the summer of 2020, it became an incredibly divisive topic in the church. So just to get us started, could you help us with a definition of power? And, and, and especially coming at this as a Christian, what, what are we talking about when we're talking about power? Yeah, thanks again for having this conversation. I think when we connect race to power or any other uh, identity to power, I think part of the definition, working definition, would be our ability to recognize it. Uh, there's hmm. a normativity right? There's something that comes naturally to those in positions of power that it's so natural for us. We don't recognize it. Uh, and so if we talked about uh, men, if we talked about white, uh, if we talked about heterosexual, these are all examples of things we never think about that perhaps for uh, a vast majority of us in these dominant groups, the world is set up and built for us so much so that we don't recognize it. We simply go through our lives normally. Um, but that's part of the challenge of power is that we fail to recognize it because 
uh, we live it. It's so deeply ingrained in so much of what we do on an everyday basis. So I know this is on a podcast, but a typical example that I give when I'm giving a talk with a room full of people, I ask them, how did you get here? How did you get into this room? And they say, well, what are you talking about? I just We just came in. Like you just walked in. Yeah, I never thought about it. Well, did you look for uh, wheelchair access or do you have someone helping you with uh, uh, the writing or Braille or anything like that? No. Why? Because it's so natural, right? That's a form of privilege, uh, ability privilege in this example. Um, but that sets the stage for people to understand it's not something we think about. Now, we have the Americans with Disability Act, and that was built for us to, for able-bodied people to be thinking about um, how we can provide for people with uh, varying disabilities. But that's more about compliance, right? It's not something we think about. And if somebody complains to us, able-bodied people, saying that we can't hear you on Zoom or we need closed caption or we need other uh, accessibility issues, Sometimes we hear that and we think, why are people complaining? I don't mm. understand. It's not like I meant to do this. I didn't willfully do something to, to hurt people with disabilities. But that just goes back to this idea that we are blind and deaf to it. We mm. literally cannot see the positions of power that we hold. That's really interesting. I, you know, you, even the way that you're describing it exposes a, a kind of a, a deficit in a lot of the definitions we've heard so far, which have revolved around like the ability or the maybe even the opportunity to kind of affect the world around you or to um, change your position in society. But something that is kind of a, a thread to what you just described is, is also like the amount or degree of effort that is that ha- that is required in order to do the same thing. So like you may have an opportunity uh, you may have the ability to do something, but there may be circumstances or um, positions or identities that that like make that move actually significantly harder or easier, depending on what we're talking about. Is that a, a good summary of kind of what you're talking about? That's good. Yeah. I, a lot of it is just our own mindfulness or our consciousness uh, to recognize that there are other groups uh, that don't have what we have, which has always mm. come, quote unquote, naturally for us. And there are many examples of that. Mm-hmm. And so um, it starts with this consciousness. And if we don't have the consciousness and an awareness, a mindfulness of others, this is, you know, biblically speaking, it would be loving our neighbors and recognizing their hurts and their needs mm-hmm. uh, preemptively before they approach us with it. Right. Uh, but you're both church, churchmen, you're, you're pastors. So you understand that if a complaint arises in the church for something, then you recognize, ah, oh, this is an area that we've never thought about. Um, and so that goes back to this idea. I think of this for Mother's Day as a good example, right? For we celebrate Mother's Day. We love baptisms for children. We baptize our infants, uh, praise the Lord for these things. But for people who can't have children, people who've miscarried women, let's be specific, um, it's it's a horrible time. They can't mm-hmm. see baptisms. They, they, they can't stand Mother's Day. We celebrate certain things. And there's a good side of it, but there's also a power dynamic, I would say, that's at play, that that's the normal standard, right? <laughs> um, that we celebrate mothers and um, we assume that everyone is able to bear children. And we assume that the relationships are all good. Uh, so these are examples when a, a complaint arises to our session, to our leaders. Um, do we hear it as merely a complaint and now everybody's feeling they 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 want their time or do we recognize this as um, not necessarily injustice in this exa- in these examples, but we recognize that there's hurt, there's there's uh, invisibility 
and voicelessness for members in our own communities. And so that, that I hope sets the frame beyond race when we yeah. talk about power yeah. and our yeah. inability to recognize it, especially when we're in it and we're in positions to hold it. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of positions of holding it, I, I wanted to ask, man, I'm getting goosebumps even just like bringing this up again, but you were the first non-white moderator for General Assembly for the PCA. And for those who aren't familiar with that, what that basically means is um, it's not like a Pope position. It's like the, um, you know, lead cat herder um, <laughs> and and the, the the person with the gavel up front during our denominations annual uh, conference, so to speak, where we make really significant denominational wide decisions. It's it's the most powerful uh, position in the PCA in terms of the like kind of denominational hierarchy or what, what, whatever hierarchy we have. Um, and so you, as the first non-white moderator of GA, um, I, by the way, got total chills and, and I still love thinking about that moment when, uh, we were led in prayer in Korean and, and how significant that was for, for the PCA. And so I, I just want to ask like on a, on a purely personal level, what was the significance of that moment like for you? Like beyond the the obvious historical importance of it, like what what was the that experience like for you? Yeah, it was uh, absolutely memorable, um, and probably one of the fondest memories I've had in my sort of modern lifetime. Um, and it was beautiful for the moment that it was. Uh, representation at its most basic level, representation matters. And having not seen uh, a non-white moderator, an Asian American or Korean American moderator, um, for many people, it was a, uh, a precious moment. For me, trying to just step outside of myself and recognizing the moment for what it is, um, mm. it was nice. I had many... Korean Americans and others, but Korean Americans in particular come up and, you know, just sharing how emotionally um, meaningful it was for them. They said, mm. you're the PCA Obama, or you're the PCA Jeremy <laughs> Lin, was probably a more realistic example, just someone you haven't seen in these roles before. Mm. That probably says something a lot. It says something about really just changing or challenging a dominant uh, normative view of what, in mm. this case, what the PCA is. Well, I've never mm. imagined that somebody would be a non-white um, elder and up there holding the gavel. That's what made it so new and interesting. And so we celebrate it. The real work then begins afterward. Will we have another one or will this lead to, oh, we just had one. We don't need to have another mm. Korean mm. Uh, moderator, do we? Because uh, that feels like it's affirmative action or, you know, we're we're filling in. Um, I'd, I'd heard this comment from somebody saying that uh, after me, it was Erwin Ince. And they said, oh, we have another affirmative action moderator. Um, oh. And so, you know, this, these are things that uh, the dark side, uh, the underbelly of our denomination, um, even in just uh, these are things that people are thinking and feeling because it just feels like if you're in these positions and you're the first one to do it, it goes against a dynamic, a, a natural sort of power dynamic uh, that people will feel that if you are, in this case, white, um, you've somehow deserved or earned your position. And if you're not, then it's because of some political, cultural uh, games that are being played to try to even the playing field. Well, and maybe maybe expound on that a little bit, because, I, I, you know, my next question is, is 
you know, what was the social or cultural significance for the PCA, for the church larger uh, in that moment? And like, what maybe did it signify or accomplish, but also what did it not accomplish? Um, And and what might we be tempted to believe or assume uh, naively that, that like we've arrived maybe in, in one sense, but when we actually haven't or yeah, how, how, yeah, yeah, that's good. Maybe, maybe like if there's a way to do that in a concrete way, like what is your um, perspective on like how far we have gotten or how far we still have to go in that sense? Yeah, I think it's uh, our natural tendency to want to celebrate the good and feel like through this one epic moment, this uh, a tweetable moment, if you will, or Instagrammable <laughs> yeah. moment that we have somehow arrived. This was true with mm. President Barack Obama when, when he was elected, the first black president of the United States. We said we are now post-racial. And some of the most um, progressive media folks were saying this, right? It uh, was really interesting that it's, it's so tied into an individualistic culture that we mm. think that one moment, one person is all we needed to change the game because it mm. fails to recognize systems. And it's a system that's actually in place that needs to change. But the easy answer is the compositional diversity. The easy mm. answer is having some representation mm. and then patting ourselves on the back for all of our, our accomplishments and then saying we can move forward now because we've solved the problem of race. The reality is it becomes more complicated for one group of people who are more the progressive say this is beautiful because this is progress and we've made it um, mm. and we want to celebrate it. And then you'll challenge people who say this is barely getting started. This is the bare minimum that we can do. And so the progressives are going to throw their hands up and say, geez, we really can't win, can we? <laughs> There's so much more that people are unhappy about. I thought they'd be happy or they were happy longer, but they were only happy for that brief moment. And then they want more. Um, and the conservative folks socially are going to say, yeah, this is this is part of the problem is, you know, it's it's just we got to stop doing tokenism. And having people represented because then these people keep bringing up issues. You want the compositional diversity, but not the culture that comes with it. So, Mm. uh, you know, some of the things that I've said and write about um, and teach about is problematic because it challenges a lot of the normative assumptions that we have about Christianity in America, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, you said you know, we've arrived or we haven't arrived. I mean, but like, is there a destination? Like what, what would, what would the goal look like if it's not simply compositional diversity? Yeah. Cause, cause what you just described actually is, it's funny. I've never thought of the culture wars as like a dog chasing its tail, but that, that is exactly what you just yeah. outlined. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have to, I mean, it's the first, it's like the initial stages of this with anything on a journey that we're on to understand, Mm. uh, you know, in the secular world, we call it equity mindedness. From a Christian perspective, how do we continue to love our neighbors? What, when Mm. is enough enough? When, when are we supposed to forgive 70 times seven? Or do we, how often are we supposed to reach out Mm. to somebody? I think churches know how to do this well. Is it a one-off during Christmas and Thanksgiving, we're going to go visit a shelter and deliver canned goods. Uh, there's one event in the summer that we're going to do with all of our junk in our garage that we're going to donate uh, for a, a two-week mission trip to Mexico for high school kids, right? Sorry to be overly cynical, but you know, is, is that the extent <laughs> of our charity? Or do we realize, as many have over time, their thinking on this has evolved? 
Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, we need to be embedded in the community. We need to work with people. We need to understand them. We need to learn from them. And you could see the, the superficial level of what we think is important versus the deeper. Mm. Um, this is no different. Right. This is like a, a new believer who comes to church and, and they very excitedly say, hey, I went to church last Sunday. I'm like, that's wonderful. They said, yeah, I'm going to go every year. Man. Like, well, well, you know, we meet every <laughs> right. week, my friend, right. but yeah. they're not there yet. But they're so excited that they were able to go once. And so that's a step that we should celebrate. But you realize there's so much. You could read the Bible every day. You could do a discipleship. You know, there's so many things that you're like, oh, look, that's too much. Okay. I don't want to go like Jesus crazy. Here's where I am. The superficial <laughs> level. This is good enough. Yeah. It's true with every topic. So then when it comes to when we're talking about this, about being more equity minded and looking at racial dynamics and challenging some power structures that are in place, uh, depending on where you are, you think I've done enough. Or you think, mm-hmm. I have a lot more that I need to do. Well, it seems like at the end of the day that any representation that does not include or lead to formation is just a gesture. That's right. Yeah. The term yeah. I've heard more and more is performative uh, justice. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Right. I could tweet it out. I could put it on Facebook. But you know what? Even that is okay. It's a start. <laughs> it's somebody who would never have posted anything about race and racial injustice for the first time ever posted mm-hmm. something. That's that's a step in the right direction. I I appreciate you saying that because, you know, you you started off by saying one of the issues of power here is that we don't even recognize the issues that we're bumping up against. And, and I think that one of the challenges can be being a person who says, I'm trying to see, you know, I'm thinking of the David Foster Wallace kind of uh, statement about like the the fish that doesn't know what water is. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to see the water that I'm swimming in, but I'm also afraid to, to, to say the wrong thing to, to, to make the mistake or to, you know, in the example you're giving there of, okay, well you can tweet something. And is that just performative? (laughs) You know, is it, is it worth, I guess it feels like for some people, like, how, how do I, how do I, okay, I'm trying to see the water I'm swimming in, but is it worth sticking my neck out? Because if I do, then I'm going to sort of get hit from both sides. Right. That's right. Um, my co-author and uh, friend Christopher Collins and I have written four books together. Um, another one that's forthcoming. But um, one of the concepts that we talk about in, in our books, and the most recent one is white evolution, uh, the constant struggle for racial consciousness we talk about this term white 22, sort of a spin off of Joseph Heller's catch 22, but mm. white 22 oh. is basically you're white if you do and you're white if you don't. <laughs> and so many of my friends and colleagues oh, and yeah. brothers and sisters are saying, Alex, I can't win. Right. No. I mean, I was told, go do your work, you know, explore. You need to sit and learn and get engaged. And so I got engaged and I posted something and I went to a rally and then I got there and people are like, what are you doing? Sit down, shut up. Uh, you need to just listen. And so they're like, what am I supposed to do? But that's the reality of an evolution uh, that we're continuing to just wade into something and realize there's a whole world out there. And so this is the, I, we recognize the struggle for, in this case, for white folks, but you can switch it to male 22, you can switch it to, uh, you know, uh, heterosexual 22. I mean, there are many examples of where we're in dominant positions, we never think about it. And that one moment we think about it, uh, we realize there's a whole world that we are unaware of. Man, I, I, 
there there have been few things said in this podcast so far that simultaneously feel like extreme validation and a punch in the gut like <laughs> that what you said about um, why if i do what if i don't and man like it really is because there, it's it seems culturally speaking and i think this has so much to do with the individualism you were talking about earlier uh that no matter where you stand if you're not speaking out platforming um expressing in some form or another like who your enemy is in one direction or another, whether it's the it's it's the enemy that we think we should have or the enemy that that others think that we should have, like th- there is this there is this vicious cycle and feedback loop uh, that says that actually there isn't a right answer here, but we're all expecting one another to have it, and I, I don't know that yep, <laughs> I, I wish right. there was a clearer question in there, but I just feel like you articulated so well the the conundrum that is like wow there. So maybe let me just ask this and, and I'll pass it off to Bryce for uh, to, to build deeper into here. But like when you're talking about, you know, evo- this this conversation as an evolution, that that seems to communicate to me that there's a, a sense that this is something that's happening um, apart from or that is, you know, we don't have to have a whole lot of clarity on where it's going because it's going to happen. And that's that's like a good thing that can be freeing in the midst of that conversation. But also um, it makes it really hard to understand how we uh, cooperate with it in a way that is actually good and biblical. Like, w- w- how do you, how do you know the difference? Yeah, that's excellent. You know, I'll speak to some of this, and I, I love to speak in examples that are outside of race sure. because it's something. Again, we do all the time when we talk about sin. Mm. Has sin gone away? Have we all mortified sin in our lives? In it, maybe we were able to capture one area that we've struggled with, but another one emerges. Right? Mm. That's how the devil works. Yeah. Um, at just our sinful nature, and so the doctrine of uh, total depravity. We understand there is always brokenness. This side of heaven, this side of glory. Um, Anyone who fails to recognize that has a fundamental misunderstanding of sin. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're constantly fighting, constantly struggling to overcome it. Uh, We're guarding ourselves and things that we do, both for lust and power and all these other things. So we get that. All of a sudden, when it comes to something like race, people who agree with me with total depravity all of a sudden say, yeah, but we've conquered race. Mm. Right? Sure. I'm like, what? That's an odd kind of theology that you found one mm. exception to the rule, and it happens to be on racism mm. that we've somehow overcome this. Uh, but we, there's still the doctrine of uh, total depravity. Mm. I think that's the part that keeping your eye and your focus on the issue is important, right? This is the sinfulness and the brokenness of the world. And it's manifested in, in, in the world's case and in the church by extension mm. with racism. And many other issues, but you know, since we're talking about race today, if we fail to recognize this, how sinister it is, um, and how it, another term we use is, is like a virus, it mutates and changes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we fail to recognize that if we've stopped it in one area, it's going to resurface in a different mutated version. And that mutation, that strain, as we've learned with COVID, can sometimes be worse. Too soon. Right? Too soon. <laughs> yeah, too soon. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're anyway. fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's so helpful, Alex. I, I mean, it, it's really, um, I was going to say interesting, but I guess it's more sad to think about that, mm. especially when we're trying to talk about race in the church. So often it's not, we're not coming at it from a theological perspective. We're not thinking about this in terms of total depravity. Yes. And and race gets shoehorned 
even in the church into culture war categories. And, yes. and at, at the risk of oversimplifying, it can seem like, you know, for those on the progressive side, everything is a function of race. And then for those on the conservative side, it's like there can't be any admission that anything is about race at all. And somehow to admit that is to sort of give up any... Give in to culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah, we're no longer being biblical. Right. So how do we... Like, is is there please like a gospel third way? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Well, I, I think... In one sense, I feel like we need to talk to our people, uh, you know, our own people. So if you're a conservative, um, and I've seen it with David French and, and others starting to talk to his own people saying, look, this is a real problem. Uh, white supremacy is real um, and it's manifesting in funny ways. Um, it, it, when I get challenged to talk about like if you're a Christian, especially as an elder in the PCA, um, to be careful about bringing in the world or culture into your theology. And I say, you're absolutely right, because I'm learning from history in our own denomination mm -hmm. and the history of the church mm -hmm. in America, right? That slippery slope was already identified, right? When good Christian men and women enslaved Africans and owned other human beings and justified it biblically, right? The slippery slope started from whatever the the right or the conservative side long before it influenced the left or the progressives. So we need to be, and even today when we talk about race, it's so solidified in our mind in terms of that narrative that we say, oh, anything about race sounds like it's worldly or cultural and it doesn't belong in a church. And yet the issues that have emerged over the years from the church and in the church was because of this false um, understanding and inability to separate the world and culture from theology and our biblical mm. uh, worldviews. Man, I, I there's I, I want to go off on that, but I'm going to resist because we've talked about this a lot and 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 about how in when gosh when when evangelicalism uh, defines what is right and true based on what it is against or what is it, it is an antithesis of we have ceded control over uh of, of of our own epistemology in ways that actually invites in the very thing we're trying to prevent and and and, and race gosh i mean it almost feels like race is like the og uh topic on that because because of the history that you mentioned and now we have yeah. you know um, sexuality and gender being a thing and, and politics, like the, the culture war expands from there, but it's, it's, it is a really helpful reminder actually of how far back that history of antithesis, uh, goes. Yeah, exactly. I, I was reading, um, uh, Kristen Dumez, um, Jesus and John Wayne. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful, painful, but wonderful book to read. Uh, but she gives this example, right? We're talking about John Wayne, who wasn't even a Christian, right? But how did that character, that person, suddenly become like the rallying cry for which uh, white Christian men in the United States uh, saw him and said, this is who we want to be, right? And so it's fascinating, uh, the critique of Black Lives Matter, because it's, you know, all these different things about their belief systems, and it's not Christian, so sh should Christians get involved? And I'm like, I haven't heard that same thing out of the same person about Wall Street, hmm. 
about the U.S. military. Now we're really getting into dangerous areas. I, you know, they're not Christian organizations, and yet we wholeheartedly embrace uh, what they do. We celebrate people who work on Wall Street. Oh, it's wonderful that you're, you know, you're in the marketplace and you're sharing the gospel with in the world and, you know, serving your country and all these things. Um, and I, those are good, but we need to challenge these assumptions that somehow the U.S. military is Christian. Man. Okay. Or that the United States is Christian. I, I, I w- actually want to, I want to come back to that, but in the context of something. Uh, so let me introduce that and, and circle back, especially with the Jesus and, John, Jesus and John Wayne part, because I think that's actually really helpful. Um, so, but first, can you, let, let's just, let's just pull the bandaid off and actually like name uh, a much of the, the, a lot of what we are actually talking about in, in this kind of cultural moment. Um, can you please, and I'm begging you, please, please define CRT and what actually is critical race theory um, and what it's not, because that would be great. And having a, you know, I, I want, we want to ask the book that the, we want to ask that of the author of the, of a, someone who's written a book called white out understanding white privilege and dominance in the modern age. Right. So can you define CRT for us in a way that's like help, like actionable that's or that we could, concrete. that we could um, remember it tomorrow. Even, yes. That would be would great be, too. Would be helpful. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, critical race theory originally emerged out of critical legal studies. Um, so the modern version, probably now 20-something years old, uh, maybe a little longer, but uh, this a theoretical framework of understanding. Uh, there are several tenets. One of them, uh, the first one, um, I won't go through all of them, but uh, the first one is this idea of the prevalence of racism in society, right? Taken at a, a secular level and the approach that theorists will cover that, I mean, you know, we can disagree with that. But I talked about the doctrine of uh, total depravity. Mm-hmm. That would make sense from a biblical lens, right? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't they align to see this as saying, yeah, in the broken world that we fall in, world that we live in, racism is uh, endemic mm. in society. It will always be here. Uh, another one is this idea of impact versus uh, intent. Right. That's one of the theoretical lenses that they use uh, intent versus impact. Even if you didn't mean to do something, if you ran over my foot at the uh, accidentally uh, at the airport. Right. You have to acknowledge the impact that it had on this other person, not refocus on your intent. So the problem is we only focus on intent, not impact. I'll come back to that with an example mm. in a minute. Okay. Uh, another one is interest convergence is this idea that uh, any group that's in power, if they make a decision to do something that seems like it's a justice or equity-oriented thing, we do it insofar as it benefits us in a position of power, right? How can this actually help us? Um, And so it's more politics. Several other concepts, but these are the general ideas or lenses by which we look at um, the world. Uh, Intersectionality is another one that I should mention. Um, And this is the, again, the original scholars who came up with this, like Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a a law professor, and this idea of intersectionality, for example, uh, she'll talk about uh, the suffrage movement uh, to get women to vote, Mm -hmm. right? The women, the right to vote. Was it all women or was it just white women? Because Mm -hmm. black women didn't have the right to vote. So when we talk about feminists or talk about uh, women, we're talking about the experiences of white women that 
they have to struggle with the gender piece, but they don't struggle with the with the race piece. If you're a black woman, you're struggling with both the gender and the race. And so the levels are heavier. Hmm. Right? That's that's the idea of intersectionality. Now, that was the original idea. This is where people get nervous in our denomination and other places because they hear intersectionality. By that logic, if you're gay and black and female, then you've got another layer, which also makes sense. But that was not the original um, intent of, or the approach of intersectionality. And so now it's expanded because a lens generally expands. So there's blacks, this is originally for black and white for critical race theory. Now there's Asian crit, there's Lat crit, there's other versions that emerge because not everything was addressed. So if I could try to summarize that, would you say then that like, just to try to be really uh, probably at the risk of some overly simplifying, but like it sound, what you're describing to me sounds like a, a toolbox of options and different tools that can be used to describe, analyze, evaluate, et cetera, um, different dimensions of, uh, or different facets of power dimensions or differentials, different facets of power differentials. Is that? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, this is where I'm, I'm, I'm super curious because um, in trying to kind of describe and explain my own perspective to people, and I don't remember where I heard this first. It, it was David French. I've, I've said, and, and now David French says, um, that it can be a helpful kind of descriptive tool to understand what the problem is, but some of its uh, foundational assumptions make it very problematic as a prescriptive tool in arriving at a solution. It, and, and so maybe is that, a, is that accurate? It depends on who you ask. Scholars don't agree either. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, all the secular lefty liberals don't agree either about what critical race theory is and how it's supposed to be applied. As every theoretical framework goes, it's wanting in terms of application. Right? Most theories, uh, what makes them theories, are they're not supposed to be prescriptive or um, have readily available application. But it's a lens by which we view the world. Mm. Similar to TULIP. I would say tulip is great, but is there practical examples of how we're supposed to live our life? So, okay, total depravity, Alex, I get it. <laughs> Limited. What does that that's, mean for that's me? Fun, that's really interesting. I have a I have mm. a friend who is a, um, you know, for people who aren't in the PCA or Reformed world, they we may have lost them here. But you know, tulip as the kind of summary of. Uh, John Calvin's approach to salvation and reformed theology. I have a friend who who says he's a Calvinist, but he's a phenomenological Arminian because he says the way that I experience life is, you know, is sort of functioning out of my own free will, even though I affirm the theological premise that God is sovereign over even my decisions. Yeah, that's a great example of someone who came up with a practical uh, approach to a theoretical theological uh, framework, hmm. right? But it's unfair, I would say, to go back to the origin. Well, now Calvin's long dead, but you know, say what? What's the practical implications of some of this? How does it get worked out? Well, take the framework for what it is. Um, it's not perfect, uh, dare I say? I'm talking about CRT, mm -hmm. but also Tulip, um, right? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, even Calvin would opportunity say, offender. I mean, Calvin would say that Tulip wasn't. He didn't gear it around five points. That was Jacob Arminius's. Uh, That's right. Critique. It was a response yeah, to the exactly. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, and 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 um, the the point has been made that um, Calvin never actually articulated the doctrine of limited atonement. So uh, it's it's a theoretical response to 
well, we're totally in the weeds now. Yeah, we're the, yeah. The remonstrance <laughs> is where the five we lost everybody now. <laughs> um, so I think about the example uh, of um, I gave the example of suffrage, uh, but you think of other examples that it just if you're in a position of power, you rarely think about. I know that you the, the country was divided by civil war, um, and it was un- unless anyone's mistaken, right? Um, it is clearly about enslavement of African people, right? Not states' rights. It was really about yeah. slavery. Well, it's interesting that after the after emancipation, Black citizens still didn't have the right to vote for 100 years later, right? It's interesting that even our mentality, in my darker days, I think, well, the Civil, the civil War was interesting because it was a group of people who didn't value Black life, but didn't want them to be enslaved mm. versus people who didn't value black lives and wanted them to be enslaved. But it just, it wasn't like immediately we moved to voting rights and housing and all these other things that didn't happen for hundreds of years later. Um, it's fascinating how uh, the mind continues to evolve, but we were at the moment happy with and celebrating. Okay. So, so let me, <laughs> let me ask this. And, and this is, this circles back to the Jesus and John Wayne uh piece of this conversation. And I'm, I'm going to single-handedly alienate literally everyone by asking uh, a couple questions here. Um, so first, it, with that kind of descriptive versus prescriptive kind of simplistic way of summarizing um, CRT, it strikes me that a lot of the objection to Jesus and John Wayne, for example, is uh, the conflating of descriptive and prescriptive, such that like, and I know uh, Kristen Dumay has has said multiple times, like I'm a historian. I'm trying to describe something. I'm not trying to say what the church should do. And and I think it's like, okay, I believe you mostly. There's there you <laughs> explicitly maybe there's some implicit um, uh, judgments in there, sure. But like for the most part, I, I'm, I'm I'm on board with that. Here here's my question, um, and and I think that we should give charitable assumptions, and also like that actually is. That bears up in in, in the, the writing of, of her book, too. Here's my question. You mentioned how, uh, you know, John Wayne was like looked to as a figure. But if we can have a common grace approach to CRT that says there's some descriptive aspects of this that we can affirm, uh, why not John Wayne? Like, surely he had some character hmm. uh, fruit of the spirit that included loyalty to friends and partners and community and doing the right thing, no matter what the cost is. And, and I think that when uh, there are, are people on the conservative end of the spectrum uh, within evangelicalism, they're like, well, no, we're not going to affirm misogyny in the aspects of that, but, but like, do we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater? And, and, and I ask this just because, I mean, I don't have a personal attachment to John Wayne, but the, cancel culture on the left and the right of like not being able to eat the meat and spit out the bones feels like an intellectual uh, deficiency that we have got to find a way to get over because it's, it's tearing us apart. And so I guess I just asked like, maybe can you uh, help me understand where, like, how do we do that in, in, in both directions when we're, when we're talking about this? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there is no purist, right? There, it's almost impossible to hold to this conviction. If you, if you, on the one hand, you say, well, because of the elements of CRT that I don't like, that are not biblical, uh, I'm going to throw it out because anything that's secular uh, doesn't belong in the church. I'm like, well, then what do you do with cancer? What do you do with other, you know, that it's not rooted yeah, sure. in the Bible in terms of uh, cures, 
But, you know, and there are some people who hold to that conviction. They say, I'll never go to uh, secular doctors. It's only prayer and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, basically prayer and maybe um, putting some ointment on the on the forehead. Right. Um, but okay, I mean, I will concede. Right. There are certain people that we continue to celebrate in uh, at the expense of others. Uh, so people are like, why can't we keep talking about um, mm. oh Jonathan Edwards? Right. It's known to have enslaved, uh, owned enslaved uh, black people. Uh, so do we just throw him out? Is that cancel culture? Well, how far do we go? Uh, I get with John Wayne. That's fine. But how far do we go? How come we don't have Hitler High School? Right? There's no Mussolini Middle School. Like, we don't celebrate these people. But what? It, what is it? Is it, it? Where do we draw the line? Is it 5 million people dead as a result of this? Or is it 6? You know, at what point? Because if we follow that argument all the way through, and maybe there are people who are going to say, look, during Hitler's time. The trains trains ran on time, right? Uh, there are some good that may have emerged. Now you'd be, it's dangerous ground to start going down that path. But um, that's the argument I'm going to make is if you choose to continue to lean into certain people to say there's some good that comes out of them because they are also made in the image of God, no denying that. Um, but it, your, the question has to come back, are you doing this just to be provocative or do you really believe that it's such a moral middle ground that any topic I can jump in and say both sides, mm-hmm. both sides are, you know, so I, I'm increasingly recovering from that both sides mentality myself, having said this many times about, you know, the test of a first rate mind is to hold on to two seemingly contradictory thoughts at mm-hmm. the same time and still be able to function, right? This is the uh, often attributed to F. Scott Fitzgerald. I have to rethink that, especially yeah. in cases of power and abuse, right? And this is a whole where we're talking about power in a, um, in this podcast. These are things that I have to reconsider in light of power. No, and, and I, I, man, I, I really appreciate that. I mean, I, you mentioned Jonathan Edwards. Um, my grandfather did a, a genealogy on our family and I'm the ninth generation directly descended from Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote a book called The Edwards Legacy. What? Wow. And, um, but in that book, um, I've, I periodically open it up and kind of look through things. What, one of the things that was just like devastating was there's this clear narrative that my grandfather wrote uh, that in kind of like a, I don't know, kind of a summary paragraph at the end of every generation, he, he writes at least three or four times uh, something along the lines of, uh, and due to the end of slavery, this family member or generation, while having great Christian virtue, nevertheless uh, suffered or lived in poverty because of emancipation. And there's this like this thread in the midst of it of like, well, they could have actually been pretty great. And they had great Christian character because they suffered as a result of other people being free. And, and it's, it's this like really icky conflation of something that can and should be celebrated like virtue, but also a very confusion, a confusion and distortion, even a perversion of, of what that means in its linking there. And, and it's like, ah, just even yeah. my own personal wrestling wow. of like, I, I don't know what to do with the guy with Jonathan Edwards. Um, and so, but, but I think, I don't know, I, I don't want to derail us with this, but I, I just wonder if, even if it's not just one thing, but what like are a few questions we can ask that 
could help us to actually know when this person is more like, you know, Hitler or more like Jonathan Edwards or more like just a, a run of the mill broken center. Right. Yeah. Right. That's good. Uh, Because uh, again, the danger of Western society is so individualistic. We highlight only those unfortunate enough Mm. to be able to write this down and it's documented, but you know, a collectivistic understanding or, you know, a, a covenantal understanding is everybody was like that. Yeah. Right. We don't know the names of the, of the children who were cursed in the Bible. We just know the, the, the headship. Right. But it was everybody was complicit and everybody suffered the consequences of it. Um, it, So we have to think more systemically, more covenantally. Uh, We highlight Jonathan Edwards. This isn't to excuse Jonathan Edwards or others, but he was not alone. Right. This is where we see this happening today in modern context. The abuse of power. It's no longer just the senior pastor or this one person who's got some charismatic gifts and did some good things, perhaps, but was a tyrant. And then you're looking at this group to say, hey, elders, Mm -hmm. you all knew about this. Who knew about this and when? And how far does it go down, even down to the members, to say, oh, everyone kind of just said, well, look, this guy is, you know. Okay. Uh, Can you you talk more about one of the things that's been really frustrating throughout this entire conversation, not ours, but just the cultural one, uh, is, is it is this frustrating false dichotomy between systemic versus individual uh, responsibility for racism. Um, and I'm like, I, I took classes called covenant theology one and two at a seminary called covenant theological seminary. And I'm like, how do we not, how do we understand this from a theological perspective? So can you maybe just, can you just riff and tell us like, okay, here's how co- a covenantal theology would change the way we have this conversation and, and just in a very open-ended way. Can you just like, go there and like fill that out because yeah. I feel like that is that yeah. is something that has yeah. been really hard to find and get some good we've been we've been talking about that issue and trying to oh figure out who we could even ask about it so you you brought it up which is wonderful <laughs> so for me I'll, I'll give a brief version of my testimony that, that when I became I got saved in college but for the longest time when people said you're a sinner Alex and I you know you just struggle with that you say well I'm not a rapist or a murderer and all these you know I, and there are some evil people in the world but I'm not one of them and to say that you are a sinner because you were born in sin right that concept but the imputed righteousness of Christ it, this is because of the first Adam, and then because of the second Adam or the final Adam, you are now imputed righteousness. Both were so hard for me mm. to grasp because I was so individualistic in my approach that, you know, me and God, but not this covenantal piece. We're good covenantal mm. folk. We understand this intuitively. This is what we preach and teach regularly to our members mm. who also understand this. When it comes to this type of salvation and theology, we get it. Then we start talking about, well, yeah, my great-great-grandfather owned slaves, but I didn't. So how is that separate? And I think, how are you able to make this connection theologically, but for everything else, it falls short? How is it different? And so there's one practical example to say we are all Mm. complicit. We have all fallen. We're all victims of this family history. Theologically, from our father Adam, um, uh, we are broken and fallen. And for others, it's the example of you know great 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 real great great grandfathers and grandmothers um, who did these atrocities. And so this, we need to recognize both. Do we hang our heads low theologically speaking because we're sinners? No, because we know that we're saved. There's grace. There's there's freedom. 
that's the other part of the race discussion. Do we just feel guilty if I'm a white person? Do I just feel guilty and that's what you want from me? Black, indigenous people of color, is that what you want just for me to feel guilty? No, of course not. But I'd like you to acknowledge that this is the history. Now, I'm a Korean American born in the United States, and I will talk about uh, the challenges of land theft, right? And, you know, these days with land acknowledgements and what we're doing with Native American peoples. Uh, I had a, um, a white brother come up to me when I had a prayer many, many years ago at GA about uh, a repentance um, for land theft and the way Native Americans have been treated in this country. And this person was telling me, you know, I'm, I'm so offended by this because it really hurts us. And I'm like, I wasn't saying it for you. I was confessing myself because I'm a beneficiary of land that was given, even if my family immigrated and all this other stuff, right? I am still a beneficiary of a system that was set up. And even up. then, how many examples do we have in the Old Testament where we see a covenantal representative, whether that's Josiah or uh, Ezra, who on behalf of people dead and gone, who, who sinned against God and, and neighbor, they are still repenting and taking ownership of, of sins and uh, injustices that they're not personally, individually responsible for. And I, it's always struck me like, like what, what do we have to lose? Like what's actually at threat there uh, if, if, if God's forgiveness and mercy is is big enough for all of humanity's repentance, what why like what's actually at stake? Well, there it is. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I think the fear is that we lose power. We in in some sense we feel like we've given in mm. um to some of the issues of the world. Um and then we double down and we say, Well, I'm not gonna do that. Yeah. Yeah. But what is the third way? What is the Christian response? I think you're absolutely we die to ourselves. <laughs> that's that's the mm. answer. How many times? Well, we keep doing it because that's what we're called to. That uh, it's so discouraging to to kind of think about that. That's really what's happening when we think about what you know Romans one tells us about the nature of the gospel. It, it's it's in the cross that we actually see the power of God as Jesus sacrifices Himself. Yes. So maybe even on that theme, then Alex, as a as a scholar who is, you know, you, you've, you work at a Christian university, but you've, you've been involved in non-Christian academic institutions, I'm assuming. And, and just looking at, it's not just in the church. I mean, in American culture, the issue of race is just so divisive now. It, when you're in, you know, a non-Christian institution or just in general, what, like, what do you bring as a Christian? Does um, does Christianity mm. have anything unique to offer here as we're trying to navigate just the incredibly divisive issue of race in our time? Absolutely. So before I came to Azusa Pacific University, this is my 13th year. Um, before that, I was at the University of Southern California. John Wayne's alma mater, by the way, since we're talking about John Wayne. <laughs> and it's full yeah, circle. Yeah, full circle. Um, <laughs> So University of Southern California, very secular institution, um, all about justice and all these things. But their motivation and my motivation fundamentally is different, right? Uh, I, I'm a, as a Christian, I have the hope of the cross, um, hope of the resurrection, um, and uh, loving my neighbor is what drives me to do what I do. Mm -hmm. It's Micah 6.8, right? Um, that's more important to me. Uh, and why I engage in what I do versus uh, some of my perhaps uh, 
uh, secular colleagues who say, we just want a complete overthrow. <laughs> um, and we want the bottom to be the top and the top to be the bottom. Some people hold that position. Um, and so my approach is different in that way. And so they're like, well, you, you know, you're a Christian, so you're all, also part of the problem. And I'd be the first to admit the institutionalization of religion and some of the, the misguided and brutal attempts of missionary work, missionary endeavors, uh, but the Roman Catholic and uh, Christian, uh, Protestant Christian missions. I'd be the first to admit that because I'm able to see with a critical lens uh, some of the challenges that we've seen in, in over history. The difference is, I think, having a critical lens, but not having a critical spirit. I'd hope that I'm rooted mm. in love. My approach is going to be more, I try to be more winsome, try to be more gracious. Um, then my woke card, woke card gets re- revoked, right? Because you're like, oh, no, you, 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 <laughs> this is a moment where you can't let up. And so I lose my friends on the left. Um, those are challenges. When it, you know Other issues that come up um, in other topics outside of race. It's the same thing. Some of my biblical convictions, right? Um, When they talk about LGBTQ, I I say, you know, in terms of discipline, our church disciplines still with unbiblical divorce between man and woman. And uh, people are like, you you do what? (laughs) And I say, yeah, I, you know, we're trying to hold to what the Bible says, and this is what we practice. So, you know, if that's where we are, uh, then I lose everybody else. So I, that's, I think, the challenge, but it's rooted in a Christian worldview. That's the, it looks similar, but that's the nature of co-belligerence. Um, it looks similar, mm. but the motivation is different. Do you, I assume you all recycle. Everyone's got a blue bin somewhere in their house or two garbage bags, or at least we do in California. But, sure. you know, they're... We're, we're in Boulder County. You get arrested with if you don't. Is recycle that right? Things. Interesting. <laughs> okay. So I, I share this as an example because people are saying, "Well, you know, is this? I'm not going to recycle because this is uh, abusive uh, approach of the environmental lobby that have taken over. That's not Christian at all. People will do the individual work of recycling, and also the systemic work of dealing with global warming and we'll have environmental organizations that handle large scale uh, recycling, right? It looks like we're doing the same thing from, uh, from the outside, but what's the motivation for a Christian? Well, it might be rooted not in the recycling in and of itself, but it might be rooted in this desire to be good stewards of the land that we've Mm -hmm. been given. And so if we take Mm -hmm. environmental and environmentalism and, Recycling from a good steward perspective, it's a Christian perspective for doing what we do. Well, then we can do it joyfully as unto the Lord. Um, Many examples come to mind of why we do what we do. But I bet you there are people who are listening who are going to say, no, the environmental thing, that's also secular and Christians shouldn't do it. So we just have one garbage can. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's funny. My argument is that uh, recycling is actually trying to do good by being less bad but that's a completely different podcast uh and at least podcast episode well and and i and i i'm fairly confident that anybody who's upset about the recycling issue we've probably turned them off long ago so yeah um well and so it's it's interesting you're describing of the tension of this is this is this is like what is so frustrating about leading in any capacity in this time, but you, you articulated your experience in a way that I think a lot of pastors, um, very much, uh, empathize with. And especially in that, um, 
on the one hand, and oh, let me just use an example of this for for example. Uh, so right shortly after the pandemic started, like our first attempt at a sermon series uh, and live streaming was uh, in First Peter. And so we were, I don't know, two or three Sundays in when George Floyd was killed. And if you know anything about First Peter or just do a cursory reading over it while you're listening to this podcast, you'll know that there are some things in there that like, oh boy, this is related and I can't avoid this. And we started this before this incident happened. And so we are going to go there. And I literally, you know, we had people leave citing that um, that sermon series in part because um in their eyes, I did not preach that in a way that went far enough and also went way too far and betrayed the gospel. And you're, you're describing this tension. And one of the new kind of, uh, I don't know, rocks that are thrown at institutional leaders right now is, is you, well, you, you know, just being a squishy moderate or being in the middle and trying to not alienate people is, is, uh, it's just a, it's a cop out. And, there's a sense that I agree with that of like, well, yeah, that's not the goal, but like we should land wherever truth puts us. And, and if the goal isn't being in the middle, but if the culture is going left and right, then we just got to stay there. Right. But that is hard. And I just, I mean, we, you all, you know, that we, how many pastors out there, one listen to this podcast, but also are just in this place of like, you know, I can kind of see how much easier my life would be if I just picked a side and how exhausting and uh, f- impossible feeling it is when uh, people you love and care for are throwing stones. So I guess uh, that's all just context and, and, and kind of trying to verbalize what I think you just validated very powerfully. But I want to ask, like, what encouragement would you give to pastors that are, are feeling like they're doing the best they can, but like it's, they're, they're constantly failing. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a great question. Not all of us are called to be leaders. I think we need to remember that verse is what comes to mind. And then also in this world, there will be trouble. So, you know, we, we think about, but take heart, you know, Jesus mm. says he has overcome the world. Um, if we thought going into any sort of, I, I do this with teaching, but any sort of career, and if you're called to be a pastor, uh, if you thought at some point it's going to get easier in the sense that people aren't going to complain, then maybe we, you know, we fundamentally misunderstood our work, uh, that complaints are just a part of what we're supposed to do, uh, you know, deal with on a regular basis. And it, if we can see that in a positive to say, these are things that continue to sharpen my mind and my ability to engage. Um, I, I think it could be helpful if we're thinking mm. I just need to pick a side so that my life will get easier. I would challenge and counsel and say, what about ministry? Do you want to be easier for you? Is it that you don't want to engage in these conversations with people? Because the slippery slope on that would be, I just want people who all politically ideologically agree with me in my church. I don't want diversity of thought. I don't want diversity of people in my church either. Um, and so that mm. then challenges our very assumptions that we have about quality of life issues. Um, you know, I, I just, something occurred to me while you were talking about this that I think is, I, I just want to like name, and I don't know if you intended to uh, implicitly communicate this, but uh, if you did, man, ninja move. Um, but like, it, it strikes me just in light of the conversation that we've been having, how much the ability to ask that question and have a choice is itself 
one hell of a luxury. Yeah. Um, and and how much that is actually linked to uh, the privilege of leadership uh, that mm. not all people have the ability to opt out of. I didn't know you were a- answering a question that I wasn't asking, <laughs> but you did. Thank you. Uh, you really know, helpful. the very nature of calling, you know, I, I think of that with three teenage children um, that I thought infant years were hard, you know, with changing diapers and carrying the 24 hours. And now it's harder. It's a, it's a mental game. And some of the oh, the yeah. challenge, you know, and then it's going <laughs> to change again. <laughs> so I realized, man, yeah. when does this get easier? Uh, but that's true for almost every aspect of our lives, isn't it? When God calls us to these things. Mm. And in one sense, I pray too that, you know, God remove this, this pain um, because I'm tired of dealing with it. Mask, no mask, vax, no vax, race, you know, no race. How we want to handle these things. The issue will might change, but there'll always be something that's going to emerge. Yeah. And so if we're, it, I, and I hate conflict, I'm a people pleaser and God knows that. So, you know, how, how God deals with my idolatries of people pleasing, he gives me a burden of talking about a topic that people aren't going to like. <laughs> I can be a real jerk sometimes, right? <laughs> I mean, if it, I wish it was a little more self-inflicted, I do my best to, you know, deserve it. But I mean, this is the very topic <laughs> say that like, it's right? not. this is what I deal with all the time now. And I realize God in sure. his infinite wisdom gave this to me, this topic to deal with and to lean into it, not, not shy away or be afraid of it. Um, and there's always conflict. There's always consternation that's tied to it. And I think that's what we recognize as pastors and church leaders as well. It will always be there. Mm. The day it's not, I think we should worry. I think maybe we have recreated something where everything is good and everyone agrees. And if you're on staff and everything, every joke you tell is funny and every decision you make was perfect, you might have a bigger problem than you think. (laughs) Did my staff email you before we had you on? (laughs) Hey, Alex, one one final question here. Uh, Another big part of our uh, audience is people who are trying to hold on to Jesus, but they've been really disillusioned by the church. I was actually just talking recently with, with a guy who was, um, this sounds really strange and self-promoting to say, but he, he was saying, I, I was on the train, like out of Christianity. And somehow he came across our podcast and was like, wow, this is amazing that, that there is another option between kind of the double down on the white nationalistic adjacent approach to Christianity mm. or, or, or leave the church because I'm frustrated by how the church is handling racial issues. How, how would you encourage somebody who finds themselves in that position, whether it's um, the way that they see Christians in general on social media talking about um, political issues and candidates verging on white nationalism, or, or sometimes it's just a ch- the church's refusal to even talk about the issues of race and justice biblically. How, how would you encourage somebody in that, in that spot? I would say um, part of my argument that I made in the book, White Jesus, was we've got to be able to separate uh, whiteness from Christianity. But whiteness and white culture has been so conflated with Christianity and what is American um, that when you want to leave, when, when you're upset, part of the problem is if you embrace it, then you can't tell the difference between what's American and what's Christian. Mm. If you don't embrace it, then you leave Christianity 
because you're so sick and tired of white nationalism or whiteness, right? Both have failed because you shouldn't embrace white Christianity or American Christianity, um, nor should you walk away from Christianity because it's too white. Um, so I think that's the burden that people who've walked away from, um, Rice, that was your question about people who've sort of walked away from their faith because of all the white nationalism and all these other, I'd say, use a critical lens, go back to what's unbiblical and hold on to what is still biblical and true. You know, I think Scott Sauls wrote this in one of his books that Jesus was never white, not North American, never spoke English and never stepped foot in America. Right. And yet mm. that's the portrayal that's created in the United States. And because of soft power, that's the imagery and iconography that's gone out worldwide, that even in places like Asia, you have a white Jesus. Right? I mean, the, the icon, the figure. And so we've got to be able to separate that, but not lose our faith. In well, I think even even in addition to the, the faith part, I think the thing that Bryce and I really I mean, in Boulder County, this is. This is the context for our ministry is um, is how do we do the repentance piece that you, that we we just talked about a, a few minutes ago and also lift up the beauty not just of the Christian faith but of the church because the, la- the what is I think most tempting for people that Bryce was describing is is the idea that hey you know what if I've got Jesus and I've got my Bible and I've got like a select group of people who that maybe I have a particular affinity with or agree on this topic that I've left the church over, then then that's actually a a flourishing picture of Christianity. And and in actuality, that is one of the most Western individualistic approaches to the faith you could possibly have, and is almost saying, like, please give me another hit of of this addictive heroin that I'm rejecting from mm-hmm. the church, but I'm going to double down on it in a way that actually is yeah. more individualistic even. And so, but, but like, yeah. it's, it's so hard because there's a, there's so much validity to the complaint that the church is responsible for these things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of the challenge for us is to think beyond North American uh, Christianity and look at the global church right? Uh, the majority world and the way that Christianity is being manifest culturally in other places. That's our biggest challenge is, you know, we're, we're so, it's blue passport privilege, right? It's so endemic to Americans like us that we just assume that this is the norm, that Christianity in America yeah. is the norm. And only when we, you know, short-term missions or missionaries may or may not get a sense, there's no guarantee because they might just perpetuate an American version of Christianity. Onto That's their never national partners, before. but you know if you, no, yeah, it's never ever. Uh, but when you think about yeah, you yeah, might yeah. Kim, he'll, sure. he'll tell you. Uh, but do you think about other uh, contexts of how Christianity is manifest and it's being played out? It changes in a good way. It changes the way we mm. view the world. We're tiny. North American Christianity is small. Reformed North American Christianity is even smaller. It's a speck, and it's humbling. Mm. It should be, and that's good for us. Alex, this has been such a rich conversation. I think this is one of those episodes that I know as soon as we finish, I'm going to need to go back and, and re-listen to and just um, absolutely reprocess myself. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to be here. Thank you. 
All right. Well, that was an awesome conversation with Alex Jun. Brad, what uh, changed for you after that conversation? Yeah, I, I think um, I really appreciated one of the things, the, one of the first things we talked about in the conversation around his definition of power and the, the inclusion of that dimension that is effort or difficulty in terms of exercising what power you have, that, that you may be positionally or maybe even economically in the same place, but because of a life experience, uh, race, et cetera, there are, even though you have a certain kind of positional or uh, positional agency, you still, it still may be a much more difficult process for you and may require more effort. And, and I, I mean, it's a little, honestly, it's a little embarrassing to be this far into this mini series on power and not have had that come up. And, uh, it's, it's pretty stunning. And I, it, it makes me actually think, or you, you want to, no, no, I was just going to say the same thing. I mean, I'm surprised that, that nobody has kind of gone there yet. Um, and yeah, the, the, how much of power is the, is about the the ability to recognize that you have it and that you are stewarding it in certain ways, or 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 not stewarding yeah. it well in in various ways. Yeah, well, and to, even to the degree that like part of the premise of your question and the premise for this entire podcast that you and I are doing around everybody we know and ourselves included thinking, oh my gosh, what just changed? Everything just changed. What in the world is going on? And and just that experience of this is not what I expected life or ministry in particular to be. And it's making me revisit that question and ask like, is that coming from a place that everything just changed? And, or, and I'm sure this is a, it's a combination of these two answers, but also like what, what about our life and ministry was so artificial mm-hmm. that we didn't experience the difficulty and the sheer amount of effort it takes to do what we're doing. Yeah. Like what, what was the, the, uh, the boost or training wheels we were, we were riding on that meant we were protected from having to fall over. And I, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily just like a race thing, but I think as that actually is a picture that we can look at into this broader conversation of power that, that, I mean, I mean my mind is just like kind of spinning with, the different options that could entail. Yeah, I don't know if we've said it like, quite like this, but I, I think where I have landed on the what just changed question is, you know, the, the pandemic has been like an accelerant and a revelator, but it mm. wasn't a cause of change. And mm. and so I, I, partly what it's revealed is the extent to which evangelical Christianity has kind of been living on borrowed cultural capital. And so oh, yeah. much of that has eroded. And, and so, so much of the things that we're talking about in this podcast are trying to help Christians come to terms with, we have to lean into what is biblical and theological and not grasp onto the cultural power that is being pulled away. Dude, how many times have we, or any pastor we've known, bemoaned the Christian nominalism that we have to deal with. And the, you know, all, all of the things are like, Oh my gosh, I just wish they could see, pick up my cross and follow me. And, and dude, we, we got our wish. Mm. Wow. And how much of what we're experiencing is, is Jesus just showing us, do you know what it's like to drink my cup? 
you want to be at my left and right hand. Yeah, we got our wish and we're like, okay, that's not actually what I was wishing for. I, Well, and I think it's easy for pastors like us who have been church planters and in places where there sure. is maybe less Christian influence. Like we kind of say that, like, I wish nominal Christianity would go away and not realize the extent to which we too are benefiting from it. Yeah. So Bryce, what what uh, what changed for you in this as a, as a result of this conversation? Man, you know what I really appreciated about um, about Alex. I mean, you mentioned this several times, but how often he just pulled this like ninja move yeah. where I was not expecting um, it to go that way, and then he kind of brought it back to us mm. or me. But you know, he, he didn't he didn't speak to this a ton, but I think he embodied just this kind of non-anxious presence that we've talked about so many times. But when, when he was talking, when I asked him about, you know, what, what do you have to offer as a Christian in a secular academic environment? Hmm. I mean, that's kind of what he said, but he didn't talk too much about it. Just, okay, I don't have to fight here. I can embody, um, you know, I, I, I can be calm in a place where people are disagreeing with me and that's fine. He didn't say that, he didn't like unpack that that much, but he embodied that in everything we talked about. Yes. And, you know, I, I mean, it felt like we were both kind of going like, how does this person exist? Yeah. Both as an academic and an elder in uh, in his church, right? And it's by being grounded in who he is in Christ. And that just comes through. And that's amazing. Demonstrating the very thing he described. Absolutely. Man, that is awesome. So what just changed for you after listening to this conversation? Let us know on our Facebook group. It's linked in the show notes below. Thanks for joining us today. We are wrapping up this series on power. And again, we would love to hear from you. What questions are you asking about power? What have we missed? Let us know at the Facebook group. We've got a couple more episodes where just Brad and I are going to be wrapping this series up together. But we would love to hear from you and include your questions there. Everything Just Changed is edited by Nathan Michelle. Our logo and theme music are by Danny Rankin. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. We'll talk to you soon on Everything Just Changed. Everything Just Changed.